0: Father God, I am really excited to talk about this book. Uh, it is great that we are in this study, going through Genesis to Revelation um, as an overview, and getting a look at the big picture of your plan, book to book, and how everything points to Jesus. I don't know if I can think of a book in the Old Testament that's more pointed and directed at your ultimate plan of Jesus and This book excites me to no end. So I'm excited what we're going to be doing here. God, I pray that your message is clear, that your words come out, uh, and that we can just join together and feel the Holy Spirit, band together, have fellowship, and most importantly, learn more about who you are and just fall deeper in love with you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we made it through Genesis, um, the quickest I've ever made it through Genesis, and it still felt like it was a pretty long time. But we are finally at Exodus. Uh, It is one of my all-time favorite books, uh, and there's a lot to get into and a lot to talk about. We left in Genesis with Joseph. Joseph was in charge, he was put in charge by the Pharaoh, and he restored his relationship with his family. Jacob and all 70 of his descendants came with him to the land of Egypt to live in Goshen in the fat of the land of Egypt, and they had a good life. Uh, And that's sort of where we pick up in Exodus, and it's a very different picture 400 years later. But before we jump into the book itself, there's some background and some things that I want to talk about, because I think there's some misconceptions about Exodus just because of the popularity of the story and Hollywood's portrayals of the story. So how many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? How about the the DreamWorks Prince of Egypt movie? Which, by the way, I think is a masterpiece. It's excellent. I recommend both of them to anybody. But they got some details wrong, in my opinion, and in many scholars' opinions. Because in the book of Exodus, they never mention the name of the pharaoh. You don't really know who the pharaoh is. They mention a city, and they mention the city of Ramses, And because of that, some theologians, particularly liberal theologians, believe that it must line up with the pharaoh, Ramses II, um, who happened to be a pretty great pharaoh in Egyptian history, simply because of the mention of the name, and they think that that city was named after that pharaoh, and the Jews built that city. So they take that together and they say, it must be this. But the truth is the city of Ramses actually predated the Pharaoh by a significant amount of time. And there's a couple of things that could account for that. One is Ramses was a pretty popular name in Egyptian, particularly in royal families and dynasties. So it could have been named after a different Pharaoh from a different time period. Uh, It also could have been renamed during Ramses II's time as king or as Pharaoh. Um, because of some extra building that would have been done in the city because he was such a great pharaoh, they could have built monuments to him. And that might have been altered at a later date when the scribes are rewriting the the Old Testament. I doubt that, but it's a possibility. Now, the date of Ramesses' time ruling in, in Egypt is from 1280 to 1220 BC. Now, that does not line up with the biblical dates. So in the biblical dates... For instance, in Galatians chapter 3, you have a notation that there was 430 years between Abraham and when the law was given. So it should be approximately four, around 400-ish years between Abraham and when the book of Exodus starts. If it was Ramses, it would be around 600 years, so that doesn't line up. You also have in uh, The book of 1 Kings, it says that there's 480 years between the exodus and the building of the temple. And again, if if Ramesses was the pharaoh, that would be around 280 years instead of 480 years. So it doesn't line up with the biblical numbers. So if you look at the biblical numbers, this actually starts to make a little bit more sense. Conservative theologians date the book to be written around 1445 B.C. by Moses uh, to the Israelites somewhere in Sinai so around Saudi Arabia, in between Israel and Egypt as they're traveling through the wilderness. Now, if that's the case, then there is a dynasty that lines up with that biblical date. And so there is some information that's pretty interesting between this dynasty and the biblical dates. It's called the Hyksos dynasty, the 18th dynasty. Uh, and they, this family reigned between 1675 uh, and 1570, B.C., or at least the first king uh, of the Hyksos dynasty, and so the biblical date for Moses is somewhere in the 1500s B.C., um, going into the late 1400s B.C. when he late to mid 1400s B.C. when he was in the Exodus and traveling around. Moses lived for about 120 years, so he spanned a couple of centuries. So this kingdom would have started off after the beginning with Hyksos, um, under interesting names. So the first king in fifteen seventy would have been Achmos. Achmos the <coughs> first, and he reigned between fifteen seventy and fifteen forty six BC. And then there's after him, his son's name is Thutmose Thutmose the First. Um, so Thutmose the First or Thutmose the Second, his son, would have Probably thought Moses II would have been the, the Pharaoh that was alive when Moses was born. So, the interesting thing about Thutmose II is that Moses II didn't have an heir, but he did have a daughter. So, his daughter ended up actually being Pharaoh for a little while, and name, her name was Hatshepsut. In that, she very possibly could have been the daughter who adopted Moses. But because there was no heir, and during time Moses would have fled into the wilderness then it would have moved to a different member of the family named Thutmose III. And if this is the case, then think about this because this dynasty Achmos, Thutmose, Thutmose the II, 2nd, Thutmose the 3rd and then Amenhotep would be the next one. But all of the sur portions of their name are Moses. So if they adopted a child into their family they would have named it moses would have fit with that with the dynasty's name and even though moses was given the hebrew name of being drawn out because he was picked up out of the water as you see in the book of exodus it also fits with the dynasty's name as well as his hebrew name so there are some things in there that make a whole lot of sense now the another problem with ramesses is that Ramesses, his 13th son, took control after Ramesses died. Now, Ramesses was considered a great pharaoh in Egyptian history. So it doesn't really line up with the Exodus story, because the Exodus story, that pharaoh had a disastrous reign. But Ramesses had a great reign, and his son went on a conquest, a military conquest. And during his conquest, there's Egyptian record of his son Merneptah naming Israel as a nation in its land. And so it doesn't make sense for the exodus to take place at the same time as someone performing a military conquest, already naming them an enemy nation. But if you take the early date, and they actually had time to establish themselves in that land, they would have been considered a nation separate from Egypt at that point in time. So it's much more likely that the the line of Thutmose would have been the reign or the the pharaohs of the day. So Thutmose II would have been the pharaoh during Moses' birth. Thutmose III would have been the pharaoh during Moses' time in Midian when he runs away from Egypt. And then Amenhotep would have been the pharaoh of the Exodus, would have been the the guy he would have grown up with in the palace as you get to the Moses story. So just some background and interesting things for you to understand as we sort of break into this story, because we left off with Joseph. And so what does Genesis 1, or I'm sorry, Exodus 1 tell us? It says, now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So there's 70 people who traveled with Jacob from Canaan to Egypt. Joseph died, and his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were grateful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So the land is covered now with um, Israelites. Now, here's an interesting thing it took a, wa- a while for there to be a dynasty that opposed the Jews in that land. Archaeologically, there have been buildings. Uh, found in Egypt that don't match Egyptian architecture, but they do look like Semitic structures like you would find in ancient Israel and around the Canaan area. So there's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests that the Israelites were there because it looks like Israelite structures. And if there was a significant period of time where they weren't challenged by the Egyptians, they were able to just live their own lifestyle among the Egyptians. And so that makes a lot of sense. But verse 8, now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and here's the problem. He said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen uh, in the event of war that they should join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them and afflicted them, with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh, supply cities, Pithom and ramesses but, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. So they just threw them into slavery and, and tried to beat them down, but the more they oppressed them, the larger the nation grew. So Pharaoh has another idea. It says, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom was the one Shipra in the name of other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why haven't you done this? And they basically said, the Hebrew women are just, they're very... Feisty. <laughs> That's Steve Finley version. So he then tells his soldiers, the Pharaoh, at the, the last verse in chapter one, it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall leave alive. He tells his soldiers to kill all of the male children. Leave that in your mind, because we're going to talk about that very soon. And so the first chapter gives us sort of a background. What's changed? What's gone on? 400 years have happened. There's a, new, there's a new king in town. He doesn't like the Jews. He enslaves them, and he's afraid of an uprising. Now, the Jews themselves also had a prophecy from Abraham that was part of their oral tradition that they likely discussed on their own. In Genesis 15:13, the Lord says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So it's been 400 years since Joseph. This is oral tradition. They might actually have some hope at this point in time as they're growing, even though they're getting oppressed. Moses is born. Verse 2 of chapter 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a beautiful child. She hid him three months. Now there's a pastor I listened to who made, who like joked about that verse, because Moses is the author, and he writes about how beautiful a child he was. So that's that's funny, and she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it. So she basically puts tar around a basket so that it will float and not—it'll be waterproof. And his sister stood afar off, knowing what would be done. Then the the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked alongside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women and uh, may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went, called the child's mother. Then the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name, Moses because I drew him out of the water. And that also matches up with the Thut Moses lineage names. So here's the deal. in The first two chapters, this is what you see. There's 400 years of silence, but hope that there would eventually be something coming to save the Jews. 400 years later, a child is born and he's born at a time when the king is paranoid and he wants to destroy all of the male children to prevent an uprising. Moses survives this slaughter by being adopted into the Egyptian household. Matthew chapter two is almost identical to what happens to Moses. Jesus is born after 400 years of silence from the prophets. From Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years of prophetic silence. But there's hope because there was dates given for the Messiah to come in Daniel chapter 9. And so they're excited and hoping for the Messiah to come. And as he's being born in Bethlehem, King Herod finds out about a possible king of the Jews and out of his jealousy, slaughters all the male children in Bethlehem. Jesus survives that slaughter because an angel tells Joseph to take him to Egypt and he survives that slaughter by going to to Egypt. So you have two saviors of Israel being born at a time after 400 years of silence, with a king who's slaughtering the male children, and they both escape that slaughter through Egypt. Which also parallels Abraham, because Abraham spent time in Egypt as well and was called out of Egypt as well so there's a theme of what's going on with the promised one that Abraham was the one who had a promise, Moses is the lawgiver and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So all of these things point directly to who Jesus is. Now there is another thing that makes me want to look at Moses even closer because at the end of Moses' life after they had been wandering through the the desert as they're approaching the promised land, and Moses is on his way out the door because he's not allowed into the promised land, he's recounting the law for the people and giving his final sermon. And in there, he states this in Deuteronomy 18.15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So we should expect parallels between Jesus and Moses, and it's shocking. It starts right from birth. So from this point, Moses is a prince in Egypt, but he eventually finds out that he's a Jew. Now, we don't know at what point. We don't know if he always knew. We don't know if he finds out later on when he's in his, as an adult, as a teenager. We have no idea. But at some point, he finds out, and then he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And when he does, he kills the Egyptian and saves the Hebrew. Verse 14 of, of chapter two picks up and says this, and he said, "Who made you a prince and a judge over us?" So after this happens, Moses approaches another Jewish man, and the Jewish man says this, "Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?" Here's the principle in this, or the parallel, Moses, in his first attempt to help the Israelites, was rejected by them. And he will be accepted the second time when he comes back after Midian. That is also much like Joseph, who, as he's living amongst his brothers, is rejected by them, sold into slavery. But when they come and confront him again, when he's in a position of authority as a king, they accept him and bow to him. So Moses is now fleeing for his life, because the laws are, if you killed a slave, so if he killed an Israelite, all he would have to do is pay 20 pieces of silver, because that's the cost of a slave. And that would have been fine, because the Israelites were completely dehumanized by this new dynasty. But because he killed an Egyptian, his even as a prince of Egypt, his punishment would have been execution. So he flees and he runs off to Midian. And while he's there on his way, something happens. In verse 17, you see, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. What is that all about? As he's running, he sees a well. And at that well, he sees daughters of Jethro. And they're being ambushed or, I don't know, harassed by these shepherds, So Moses drives away the bad shepherds and then waters the flock of the Midianites. What, why do I even bring that up? What, why do we even stop here and talk about this verse? Well, after Moses' rejections from the Israelites, the next people he runs into are Gentiles, naturally, because everybody who's not an Israelite is a Gentile. But he meets them at a well. And there are a lot of things that happen at wells in the Bible, especially in Genesis moving forward. So he meets these Gentiles at a well. He gets rid of the bad shepherds and then provides water for these Gentiles. He offers them life. He saves their life and then offers them life. Water is always almost consistent with life throughout the Old Testament. Now, that wouldn't be very interesting if Moses wasn't so connected with water. Because later on, as they're wandering through the desert, Moses twice gets water miraculously for the Israelites, but he got water for the Gentiles first. And so that goes along with that principle of Jesus saying, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, stating that even though the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, it was largely rejected by the Jews and then largely accepted by the Gentiles. Um, and then that fits into our Revelation study and the salvation of Israel and Romans 9 through 11 with what Paul talks about the eventual salvation of the Jews. So now he's a shepherd living in Midian, which should also be a parallel to you. Moses leaves his position of royalty and becomes a shepherd. Jesus stripped off his glory and royalty to be humble and become the good shepherd on earth. And now he's a shepherd in Midian. And in chapter three, it starts out right here. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and in the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So there's a couple of things really interesting about this. Moses, first of all, is a shepherd, but he's out. he sees a bush on fire but not being consumed. That alone is interesting enough. But what he sees is the angel of the Lord, which many scholars, anytime you see in the Old Testament the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's likely Jesus showing up personified in the Old Testament, as opposed to the phrase, an angel of the Lord, which is more likely Gabriel. So the angel of the Lord, so God, Jesus, is sitting in this bush, and it's not burning up. Now the bush was likely a bush of acacia wood, and acacia wood is the thorny bush in the desert, the thorny wood in the desert, which the thorns would have represented the curse, and Moses is the, ones who, Moses is the one who provides the law, and Jesus is the one who fulfills the law to remove the curse. And acacia wood is also the wood that was used to create the crown of thorns that was put on Jesus' head for the crucifixion. So Jesus shows up in the acacia wood, which would have been the crown of thorns, to present to Moses the plan to redeem his people and to create this typology of what he's going to look like down the road. And so that's, you know, that's the story. Moses takes off his shoes. That's an interesting part of it. But he says, Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to be the person who delivers my people. I've heard their cry. And pick up in verse 10. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent to you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all the generations. So Moses is basically like, I don't deserve this. Why me? What am I supposed to say to the people when they ask me who sent them? And God gives his answer. He says, I am that I am. And this is the... Hebrew name for God, we don't even know what the name is because it's considered so holy the Jews would not put the vowels in the word. So all we know is that it's, it's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Those are the four Hebrew letters. In English, it would translate to YHWH, which is where we get the name Yahweh. Um, and that's what we think it could be called. Some translate it Jehovah because we don't know what the vowels are. But YHWH, um, often called the Tetragrammaton, because the four consonant letters. So I am that I am. And Jesus, actually, if you remember, in John, he states, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses in Greek an identical phrase to what this would have been in Hebrew, in the Greek. And he uses this name for himself. So he absolutely claims to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. And it is important that Jesus... Even though being the son of David was greater than the patriarchs, because he was before them. So God is sending Moses on this mission. And we pick up in in chapter four, Moses is now going to go before Pharaoh. Okay. Now he has some apprehension about this and about God using him. He basically says, I can't speak. Why are you picking me? Can you pick somebody else? On his travels, God responds to Moses in anger. And he says, fine. You know what? Your brother Aaron is a good speaker. He will go with you and he'll speak for you for a time. And so Aaron meets up with Moses before Moses heads back to Egypt. And so both Aaron and Moses confront the Israelites together. Now, this to me is very interesting because it actually even says that in chapter three, it says that you will be like God to Aaron and Aaron will be like a prophet to the people and so Aaron is the mouthpiece, the prophet for the people who prepares them for the work that Moses is going to do. And Aaron is an older relative of Moses. That sounds a lot like John the Baptist is an older relative of Jesus who was, who was spent time out as a voice crying in the wilderness, um, preparing the way for Jesus, and there was a point in time when he said, I must be, he must become greater, I must become less. And you see Aaron's ministry start to diminish and Moses's grow as you get through the Exodus story. Um, but that is a very interesting parallel to me. So anyway, Moses is going before Pharaoh. And Moses says, uh, suppose they will believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Then what do I do? So God says, here's a couple of things you can do. Take the staff that's in your hand, drop it. When he drops it, it turns into a snake. When he picks it up, it turns back into a staff. And he says, put your hand in your cloak and then take it out. When he takes it out, it looks like a leper's hand. And then he puts it back in, takes it out, and then it's all healed. Um, and he says, this, you'll have Aaron do it before Pharaoh. And that happens. Um, and so this is Moses getting his confidence and knowing that God is going to do some amazing stuff. And then Aaron's gonna be his spokesperson in the beginning. We have the first encounter with Pharaoh does not go well. Um, Basically, Moses says, let my people go. We want to go to the wilderness. We want to worship our God. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Now, understanding this from a Pharaoh's point of view, they believed they were God on earth. The Egyptians believed the Pharaoh was a God on earth. So he's like, I'm God. Who is this God you speak of? No. Um, And this goes on for a while. You know, Uh, he constantly says no, and then we have the 10 plagues. I'm going to whip through these and not, I would love to go into every single one. We sort of dealt with them in the Revelation series, so you can talk about how the salvation of the Israelites is tied to these plagues, which mimic a lot of the judgments in Revelation, which is also about the salvation of Israel. So there's the parallel. Let's go through the plagues. The first plague is turning the Nile and the water to blood. Now, the interesting thing about every single one of these plagues, not only do they connect to Revelation, they connect to the pagan worship of the Egyptians. Because the God... um, So the first plague is turning the the Nile into blood. Now, the Nile River had its own God, and that God was Osiris. And so God is putting plagues to the Egyptians that counter the pagan worship that the Egyptians have. So they worship this god, Osiris, the god of the Nile, and the god of life, because they believe their life was dependent upon the Nile, which it was. Um, And then God strikes down the Nile. He strikes down the pagan god of the Egyptians. And then in, in chapter eight, the next plague, the second plague, is frogs. And there was a god called Hecht, which was actually shaped like a frog. And they worshiped anything that came out of the Nile, And so they actually believed that they they made sculptures and and art directed at Hecht um, as a frog. And because they worshiped the goddess Hecht, they would not kill the frogs because it would have been an offense to their religion to kill the frogs. So God is also really funny. So he pours the land of Egypt with a bunch of frogs and disturbs them and makes a mockery of their god Hecht. And then because of their pagan worship, they cannot kill the thing that they're being plagued with. And also in chapter 8, God sends gnats or lice, and the dust become lice. And part of their worship would be to send a blessing and, like, throw dust on people, and that would be a blessing. But the dust turned to lice, and so he used their worship against them. Um, This also would have been against the god Seb. Then the fourth plague would have been flies, and this would have been against the goddess Kephra. Some scholars believe that the plague of flies was actually the scarab beetle, which would have represented eternal life to the Egyptians. So God is mocking their worship and what they see as representing eternal life. The fifth plague is against the cattle, and they had both a god and a goddess, Apis and Hathor, that were bulls and a calf. And so the interesting thing is while they're wandering in the wilderness and and Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, the Israelites, they ask Aaron to build them a golden calf, and it would have probably looked much a lot like the god Apis, the bull. And so they would have reverted back to worshiping this pagan symbol, but they gave that symbol the name Yahweh while they're in the in the desert, and God saw that as an extreme offense, and that's the fifth plague. Now, up to this point, Pharaoh has been hardening his heart towards God each step of the way. When we get to the sixth plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He's basically gone. This is your. This is what you want to do. This is you've made your choice. Now I'm affirming your choice, and I'm going to make your heart harder. Uh, and then they are plagued with boils. I'm sorry. This is where the ashes come in. Um, In the ashes, the dust would have turned uh, to boils. So he's mocking their worship. And then the seventh plague is hail, like giant hail that comes from the sky. Now, the Egyptians had the goddess Nut, which was the goddess of the sky. And they also had the god Shu, which is the god of the weather. And God is mocking them, just bringing this all down. At this point, Pharaoh when he's confronted by Moses, he says he wants to repent of what he's done and let them go. But then he changes his mind immediately. In this moment in the book of Exodus, makes me really think that the principle is the difference between repentance and emotion, right? So it's hard to, only God knows, right? Only God knows what's happening in the transformation of someone's heart. But sometimes, and this was, something that Charles Finney ascribed to, which Charles Finney was a good preacher and he had created a good, you know, revival in this area. But one of his things was wooing people to the gospel, creating an emotional response. And so it's difficult because sometimes there is an emotional response, but it doesn't last. And Jesus talked about that in the parable of the seeds, in the sower of the seeds, where it sprouts up really quickly and then gets taken away by the birds or gets scorched by the sun. You know, this is the emotional response of Pharaoh recognizing he's been defeated, but then his pride swelling up in him. And it not really being him kneeling to God or bowing to God, he's just emotionally spent. Repentance is different from an emotional response. And that's the principle there. And the eighth plague is locusts, which would have been represented by the god Serapis. And then the next two are really interesting. So, the plague of darkness, uh, which would be in, cha- in chapter 10, opposes the, the god Ra, which is one of the major gods of the Egyptian worship. So, Ra is the sun god, and God darkens the land of Egypt. And there are, some, in the Babylonian Talmud, there is a notation by one of the rabbis that they basically believed that unusually wicked sin was punished by this darkness. So like dark, this plague of darkness is set aside for unusually wicked sin. Now the interesting thing about that as you go through biblical history is, Egypt and the Exodus is one time where you see darkness. Another time you see it is at the crucifixion of Christ. And there's also other historical writings outside of the Bible that discuss the darkness at the time in Josephus um, as well as some of the Roman historians Talk about the darkness during that moment that existed. Um, and then you also see at the end. So Joel, Revelation, Matthew 24, and the Olivet Discourse. And he's talking about end times and part of the judgments is darkness. So unusually wicked sin being punished by darkness. It is just very interesting. And then the final plague in chapter 11 is the death of the firstborn. Um, and The god Ta was the god of the underworld or the god of death. So this is fighting against him. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is not only does it connect to the judgments in Revelation, it connects to the pagan worship of the Egyptians and God significantly opposing those gods. Now, God has done stuff like this in Scripture before as well. Well, I shouldn't say before, but he does this throughout Scripture as well. Now There's a time when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines and is put in the temple of Dagon. And then uh, Dagon, the statue of Dagon, bows down on its face and falls on its face day after day, which I think is hilarious. That's almost like a comedy bit. Like the Philistines walk in and they're like, oh, Dagon's bowing down again. Um, So God has done this with pagan gods throughout the Israelite history. What doesn't get talked about very much about these plagues is there's actually a document in Egyptian history called the Ipawar Papyrus, and the Ipawar Papyrus talks about a time, and it's dated around the biblical date of in the 1400s BC, and it talks about several of these plagues, the flies, the lice, the darkness. In Egyptian and hieroglyphs, it's an Egyptian historical document that mimics the biblical story of what happened in Egypt. So there's even some other proof about the supernatural events from extra historical sources as well. But the last plague, death of the firstborn. So God is combating the Egyptian God of death and he sends the angel of death out and the Passover happens. And if you sacrifice the lamb and you paint the blood on the post and lentil of the door, death pass o- passes over you. So what's interesting about that principle is that it had nothing to do with your lineage. If you were Jewish and you didn't paint the blood on the door, you would die. What saved you is the blood of the lamb. And the Passover is an exceptional parallel to Jesus. And that's where we're going to finish up tonight. So the Passover, this is chapter 12. And I think this is as far as we're going to get. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be the beginning of months it shall be the first month of the year to you. So they're changing the calendar. They're making what was the seventh month, the first month, because they're starting a new religious calendar with this practice. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Verse 4, and if the house is too small for the lamb, Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the houses, where they eat. Uh, And they're supposed to eat it all and not leave anything left. Nothing, everything should be consumed. So the calendar's changed because of this event. A lamb, John the Baptist calls Jesus the lamb of God. Paul calls Jesus the Passover lamb in his writings. This lamb is to be taken in for a short time, slaughtered, and then it's blood on the post and lentils of the door. So the post and lentils is the top and the sides of the doorframe. And some have pointed out that the post would represent the crown of thorns, and the lentil, the sides, would represent the nails in Jesus' hands, because that would be the picture of the doorframe, where the blood would have been as Jesus hung on the cross. And when this happens, death will pass over you. There are four elements to the Passover meal besides the lamb. They include bread, unleavened bread, which leaven represents sin, so there's to be no sin in the bread, no leaven, unleavened bread, a cup with wine. Those are the elements of the Passover or of the communion, which they were celebrating Passover at the Last Supper. So sinless bread of life, a cup that represents blood, the lamb, and then the bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs represent the pain and agony of the slavery that they were in uh, so that they would remember it. And they're to practice this from generation to generation. Now, there's much more that we're going to get into next week revolving the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all of the practices. But communion is represented right here. The lamb is represented here and what we're saved from, the bitterness of the sin problem, what we're in bondage to. And what saves us is the blood of the lamb Not our name, not our lineage, not our heritage. The blood of the lamb is the salvation principle. And so that is the parallel from Moses to Jesus. And there's much more as we expand in Exodus. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for an opportunity to open this book. God, it is so enlightening, everything that you have poured in in here that points directly to your son. Help us to see it clearer than ever before and to worship you appropriately when we gain the knowledge of who you are, what your plan is, and how perfect your word is. In Jesus' name, amen.